We're in chapter 8 in our study of the book of Romans, uh, and if you are not uh, following, I, I am going to encourage you, as we get near the end of the chapter, uh, if you have the note packet that was sent goodness, several months ago by Fred, uh, page 18 is going to be a, a chart that I'm going to be referring to later in the hour, maybe even next week, depending on how much progress we make. So let's get organized here a little bit in terms of where uh, where we are. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans is, uh, in, in, in terms of practical truth, one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it gives us the energizing power of sanctification. That energizing power in the process of sanctification is none other than the Holy Spirit. And as you might remember, you end chapter 7, not... In a, in a word of despair, but you end with Paul saying things like, I can't do what I want to do, I can't seem to do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do, where was me, etc. Well, the answer to that is, is the Holy Spirit. And we have gone through about half of the chapter. It's a chapter we're really taking our time on. And I, I want to take our time on, the, on this. But in this section we're in now, verses 12 and this paragraph ends with verse 17. Paul is developing a second key element of the Spirit's ministry in our lives. He's not only the Spirit who enables and empowers and helps us, first paragraph, he's also, he's also the one who adopts us into God's family. We are adopted into God's family, not born into God's family. And he says, again, we picked up on this last week, but I want to read it again in verse 15. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I'm not going to review all that. We really took that verse apart last week. That's how we ended the section. But you'll see the power of that phrase, the spirit of adoption as sons, or sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. As I talked last week and explained to Abba is an Aramaic word, we just bring it letter for letter into English. And that makes it difficult to find out exactly what does that mean, Abba. But it's a term of intimacy, a term of, of, of intense family fellowship. And so it's the same word, same uh, address title, if you will, that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 16, not Mark 14, verse 36. And so if Jesus could call the Heavenly Father Abba, we have the privilege of calling the Heavenly Father Abba, which I find extraordinary. So that's where we left off last week. I did not get enough time to focus on verse 16. Look at that again. We are now in the family of God. We're his child. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, that's, that's really an interesting verse. It's one of the few verses in the Bible where, uh, this is the word I used last week, where we see the mystical, emotional, subjective element of our faith emphasized. Now, if I use those words, you know what I mean by that? Mystical, subjective, um, emotional aspect of our faith. And you see what he says there. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What's he saying here? Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit 
is an independent testimony that we are God's child. Not only is this declared, verse 15, we are the children of God, we're in the family of God, we've been adopted into his family, but the Holy Spirit also gives independent testimony of that truth. And so how is this, among many other ways, how would this work? The Holy Spirit is, and Jesus talks about this in John 16, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit affirms in us the truths of Scripture. So as we read Scripture, as we pray, as we evidence the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, he corroborates, he's affirming, he keeps saying, Lord, child of God, look at how your life is changing. Look at how the Word of God is ministering to you. As you pray, you are enjoying that intimacy and fellowship with God. And the Holy Spirit, it's, it's not, this is a terrible way to try to create an analogy. So it's going to break down as soon as I utter the words. But it's like Jiminy Cricket whispering in your ear, you are a child of God. Now, if you know Jiminy Cricket, he's the conscience of Pinocchio in Disney's great classic of many, many decades ago. So again, that analogy breaks down, but you have this affirmation by the Holy Spirit in a mystical, subjective, emotional way, just constantly whispering in our ear, you are a child of God. Look at how you're changing. Look at what God is doing in your life. Look, look at what the Word says. And it's that constant corroboration by the Holy Spirit. John says a little something like this in 1 John chapter 5, where he talks again about the role of the Holy Spirit. And the importance of John chapter, First John chapter four, verse ten: He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. He that is in you, i.e., the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world. So, this is a this is a very very important verse. This the one I just read, verse sixteen, because it's that independent testimony by the Holy Spirit, that that constant corroboration by the Spirit that you are a child of God. It's that constant corroboration. Now, I hesitate to ask, do any of you have illustrations of this in your life? Because, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But I'd like you to just think this way. This coming week, you're in church on Sunday, you hear the message, uh, even in a Bible study like this, but you're in a time of prayer during the week, or, I mean, just so many different aspects of our spiritual life, do you have that sense of corroboration with the Holy Spirit, giving that independent testimony, you are God's child. Because you see, what Paul is getting at here is this is another source of our security, of our, of, of our status as a child of God. This is another independent testimony of our assurance. Long ago in my own spiritual life, as well as in the ministries that I've had over the many years, I reached a conclusion early on. If we do not have the assurance of our salvation, we will never grow spiritually. That's never going to happen. Because we're always wondering, did I sin such a terrible sin that God's given up on me and i got to start all over again? That, is, in my view, not everybody agrees with me, because some people believe you can lose your salvation. But I believe very strongly, if you do not have that sense of assurance, that deep-seated commitment that I am a child of God, you're never going to grow spiritually. And so that's why this is in this chapter, 
which is so important in the doctrine of sanctification. This, this verse is an important verse, corroborating independent testimony that you can experience. Christianity is not only experiential. It's not just what you experience, it, but it is that. There is an experiential element of our faith. It is rational, it's reasonable, we, we understand it with our minds, we, we accept it by faith, but there is that emotional, subjective, and I'll use that word even mystical, as I, I used it a moment ago, element to our faith. And Paul is just saying, part of the assurance that you are a believer comes from the Holy Spirit's independent testimony of who you are. You're a child of God. Okay? But he's not done yet. He wants to do one more thing in terms of this matter of being adopted into God's family. Verse 17, and if children, back to verse 15, if children, then heirs, heirs with God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Oh, that's, that's an astonishing statement. Fellow heirs with Christ. Not only an heir of the Heavenly Father, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. Now, what is Paul... Let's develop this a little bit. Let's think about this, because a fuller expression and detail of all of this is in Galatians 3 and 4. Paul develops this extensively, by this I mean being an heir, develops this extensively in Galatians 3 and 4. So we're not going to see it fully developed, but it's, it's a simple concept. To be a child of God is also to be an heir of God. And that is an important piece of information, isn't it? That's an important piece of information for the believer to have. That's also another important piece of information that provides that security, provides that assurance. Because if, if you know, um, I think I used this illustration last week. Peggy and I have a will, as most of you probably do, and when we die, our children will inherit our vast estate, this enormous estate we have, which is, isn't much to it, actually. But they'll inherit our estate, okay? Now, it doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter what happens to them. They will inherit this because they're an heir. And the only way that could possibly occur is if we made the decision to disown them and no longer say they are our children, to disown them. Well, God doesn't do that. God doesn't disown us. Uh, the very first sermon I ever preached, and that goes back to the earth's crust hardening, <laughs> but the very first sermon I ever preached was entitled this, God is not an Indian giver. God is not what? An Indian giver. <laughs> I could never use that title today. But I mean, I don't, you maybe don't even know what that means. But the old Indian giver idea was you give somebody something and you take it back. And so it, it's just, you know, that was, and my whole point was God doesn't do that. He gives us the free gift of his grace and never takes it back. Well, anyway, I couldn't use that. I don't know why I just told you guys that, but it just flirted into my mind. So I thought I'd say it. The, the other the other part of it is that Satan is not an error. That's right. 
say, no, 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 no. I, no matter where I would preach that, I would be read out of the church. So. And I was, yeah. Satan's not an error. And I mean, it's just, again, what I'm trying to, and what I think Paul is trying to drive home here is the importance of us understanding our identity. Importance of our understanding that one of the 33 things that happened to us when we put our faith in Christ is we're adopted into God's family and we are now declared to be his heir. Now, before we leave this verse, I want to do two more things. Number one is I want to stress fellow heirs with Christ. In, in the Galatians material, Paul uses another phrase, joint heir with Christ. That's, a, that's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, that is, what? Well, Paul talks about this. He also talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that we will rule and reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. And so he, he Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, when the, actually, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6, excuse me, where he's writing to the Galatian, uh, to the Corinthian church, and they're doing a lot of things that need to be corrected, need to be admonished. But among other things, they're taking one another to law court, suing one another, and all kinds of civil suits. And Paul says, now, just a minute. You are new creatures in Christ. You shouldn't do this. You should be able to settle these things as believers. You should be able to bring these things to the body of Christ and settle these things. Instead of going, this is a phrase he uses, to pagan law courts. Instead of laying pagans to settle disputes between you. Settle them among yourselves. And one, he gives three reasons. One of the reasons he gives is you are going to rule and reign with Christ and have authority over the angels. And if you can... Envision yourself having that kind of authority. My, you should be able to settle these little mundane things today. Because you're going to rule and reign with Christ and have authority over the angels. The Greek word there is administrative authority over the angels. I don't know about you. That's kind of an exciting thought. I can't wait to order angels, get me a cup of coffee. That is not what it means. But it means that, listen, what is in Psalm 8, where when humanity fell into sin, it was God, humanity, the angels. When we fell into sin, it was God, the angels, humanity. When we are restored in our resurrected, glorified bodies, and we're in with Christ, that order will be reversed. It will be God, humanity, joint heirs with Christ, and the angels. We will have administrative. That is an incredible thought. And so when Paul is talking about that here, again, this is an important premise that's throughout the Bible. A future promise of God should affect present behavior today. And that's what he's doing. Don't you understand that as a child of God, to be a child means you're going to be an heir, which is an important piece of information for us, which means that should affect how we live, because being an heir means you have a destiny that's been predetermined. That's what predestination means, by the way. But you have a destiny that's been predetermined, and among the elements of that destiny is you're going to rule and reign with Christ. A joint heir, a fellow heir with Christ. That is just, that is a mind-boggling promise. Because quite honestly, men, we do not know all that that involves. We really don't. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about this. It just declares. You're going to roll in the room with Christ. 
And that future promise should determine present behavior. If that's true, I should start living that way now. Because if I'm a joint heir with Christ, I want to rule and reign with him in the coming kingdom. That should affect how I live today. And that's why he adds, today will involve suffering. But your future involves glory. Notice that, see the two words there? Suffer with him, glorify with him. We suffer now, we'll reign later. And that, you know, that doesn't mean everybody's going to get cancer. That's not what it means. It just means we live in a fallen, broken world. And believers will experience the effects of that brokenness. Believers will get sick. Believers will experience tragedy. Believers will have accidents. Because that's the nature of our world. But we are transformative people. We are being transformed. And so that element, we suffer now, we'll reign later. That promise should affect how we live today. And so, again, this it's all wrapping around this important concept of assurance. Your position in Christ, which is what he's describing, is absolutely secure. And because this is the promise of God, it should affect how you live now. It, it, my wife has my wife has really gotten a hold of this much in a much more practical way than even I have because she has heart condition, she has an autoimmune disease, she struggles with a lot of health issues. But she, this is she's oh in the coming kingdom, I'm going to be able to eat blueberry pancakes. She can't eat them now. In the coming kingdom, I'm not going to have to worry about. It. I mean, she has a very dear friend uh, who died uh, several years ago. And they talked a lot about heaven, a lot about the future, because she was very sick as well. And they made a date in the coming kingdom. We're going to every morning sit down and have a cup of tea together. Now, that's not unreasonable. That's, that's not a pie in the sky. That's banking on a promise. And it's that, it's that energy that comes from this is my future. This is, I'm going to use that theological word. This is my predestination. This is my predetermined destiny. This is what God's promise. He has this for me. So I'm going to hang in there. Because I may suffer now, but I'll experience his glory later. That keeps you going. And I'm convinced as you get older, the more important that becomes in your life. I know you don't know what I'm talking about, so we'll leave it. All right. Everybody with me? I should say, really, everybody with Paul. Come on, I know all of us, some people see that as responsibility. Maybe they don't want that responsibility. They don't, they don't want to be in charge of things because they don't want this, this whatever, this new position that we have other than this operation. <coughs> and so they're saying that's just beyond what I want to do. That's where growth comes in. Yeah, I, I, I think Fred's right. This, this Fred is right. Look at any family and, and look at any family and the, the, some kids will do stuff when they're when they're not asked to do it. And other kids are, have to have but in, in time they come around and they, they grow and they accept new responsibility. It's a growth thing. I think I think so. Uh, but I also think this Fred, not this Fred, I also think 
that it is a it's a reflection of an immaturity spiritually speaking but also you don't understand all that god has for you embrace it now be excited about it now now i and honestly fred what all that means to be a joint heir of Christ, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible has not told us a lot about what that means, what that's going to look like, what the details are. I always fall back on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, I think it is. Eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor the mind of man conceived, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And I think part of this is an inference I'm drawing, I may be wrong. But I don't think God has given explicit detail about all of the future eternal life because we have no categories to really process it in our minds. We're temporal people where we have the effect of sin in everything we do. When all of that is removed and we're in eternity and we have our resurrected bodies, then we're going to be able to embrace and understand things to a much greater degree than we do now. So not everybody is going to rule in Bavaria, which is where I've asked the Lord to rule. I, I want to serve the Lord in Bavaria. And Peggy says, I don't. So I don't know what that means uh, in terms of what we will be doing in heaven together, whatever. So, all right. Is that any other question? Any questions online here? Everybody with me? This is We're not done yet. We're only getting started. Paul now transitions to a third work of the Spirit in our lives. It's verse, verse 18 through verse 25. It's his ministry of hope. Thirdly, it's his ministry of hope. Now, look at what he does here. He brought up the word suffering in verse 17. For I consider... Now, the, the word there, consider, is lagidzomai. It's, it's not a cursory, you know, flippant Paul thing. I am meditating and, and zeroing in and focusing on this, that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Suffering? Again, all that that means and all the details of what that can mean. Suffering emotionally, suffering mentally, suffering physically, whatever that involves, cannot be compared to the glory that we reveal to us. It's hard. And God seems to be saying through the Spirit-inspired words of Paul, I know it's hard, but you have no idea what waits you. When you're with me in the, in the coming kingdom in heaven, you, you will forget all of this because the glory of being with me is incomparable to what you're experiencing now. Why would he tell us this? Hang in there. Don't give up. That, endure. The favorite word that's in the book of Hebrews, persevere. It's going to be worth waiting for. It's going to be worth going through this. Now, he wants to give an illustration. And it's really fascinating what he chooses to do. He puts a cosmic spin on all this. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. I'll come back to what that means in a minute. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, what is he doing in verse 19 and verse 20? Creation is under a curse. Right? You understand what I mean? And what the Bible means? Because in Genesis 3, you have to go back to that, but in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve joined the rebellion against God, when Satan's rebellion against God, and as a result of that, everything was cursed. Everything feels the effect of that rebellion. Satan is cursed, all of physical creation is cursed, and as summarizing it real quickly, everything we do now, work, pre-work, existed before the fall. Adam and Eve worked. Work is holy, it's important. But now what changes, this is the phrase that's in Genesis 3, is painful toil. Everything you do is going to be painful toil. And you're going to find everything bears the curse. That's why there are dandelions in my yard. Right? I mean, dandelions don't belong there. That's why there are squirrels. I don't know if you guys, squirrels are digging holes all over my yard right now. I one time asked a friend years ago, well, they're getting ready for winter. They're burying their nuts. And I said, I want them to bury their nuts somewhere else, not my yard. Squirrels are evidence of the fall, of the evidence of the curse. I mean, they really are. I'm almost convinced that rabbits are examples of the curse. Now, I'm being funny. I'm being facetious. But the, there is this curse. Everything is out of order. Everything's out of sync. Chaos seems to be ruling. Because everything bears the curse. And what Paul says here, he, it's like he gives, he gives the physical creation kind of a, a life of its own. It is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of men because it's been subjected to futility. That's a very curious phrase, subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What's that talking about? It's talking about the fall. It's talking about sin. It's talking about the effects of sin on everything. And that subjected to futility, that characterizes everything in the physical world. And when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what Solomon's getting at in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is futile. It doesn't matter what you do. Everything seems to be in a cycle of futility. It doesn't matter how hard I work, how much I save, how much I invest. There's one fact I cannot ignore. I'm going to die someday. And Solomon, this is a great passage in chapter 2 of the book Ecclesiastes. Solomon looks at all he's done. I manage my portfolio well. It's a well-balanced portfolio, bonds and stocks. I've got good mutual funds, all this stuff. And it's been highly successful. I have an 11% return every year. All that I just made up, that's not in the Bible. But he managed his wealth well. And this is what he says. I'm about to die. And my children are a bunch of fools. They will not manage this well. So he asks this question. Why then did I work so hard? And this is what this is Paul is getting at here. Everything is subjected to futility. 
Everything seems to be vain, empty, because ultimately it's just the cycle of life. Everybody's going to die. Everything dies. Everything is subjected. Why? Because of sin. But they hope. Here's the key word. There's the hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That was not God's intent. His intent was to create a world in which everything works well. And human beings were to be his theocratic stewards and manage his world. That blew up when they joined the rebellion. But there's coming a day when creation will be once again freed and its prosperity and its abundance and its purpose will be restored. And the struggle in the cosmos is the struggle that's within the the Christian. We experience that same struggle. We cannot wait for this to end. And the older we get, the more that sentiment is at the forefront. And Paul is saying, now listen, this is the important theological point. There's a cosmic dimension to salvation. Everything will be restored. The earth will be renovated. There will be a massive renovation project. And everything will be renovated. And you read in the book of Isaiah, particularly has a number of prophetic chapters on this. When the abundance of everything on planet Earth is restored. And, you know, there'll be no more hunger, no more famines, no more difficulties with distributing the productivity of the Earth. It'll be super abundant because the curse of sin will be released. And just imagine, just imagine, it's impossible to imagine it. What life on planet Earth will be like when there's no more sin, no more jealousy, no more wars, no more megalomaniacs like Vladimir Putin. None of that will exist because Jesus will be willing. What will the planet look like? That's what he's talking about here. When creation is free from its curse. General places that we see now on Earth. Well, those places, as you understand the scriptures, be the same places, but with renewed, renewed in its original intent. Yes. Yes. So lakes, cities. Can you comment? Well, I, I don't. Again, you have to fall back on. Some of the things that are detailed for us, like in Isaiah 32, I think it is, Isaiah 11, where he talks about what, what earth is going to look like during the kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And the, every, everything that has experienced, every part of earth that has experienced scarcity and barrenness and so on will be restored to productivity everywhere. I mean, the Arabic word for desert is Sahara. So that's the northern part of Africa. Geologists tell us, you know, they determine this by all their digging. One time that was incredibly productive. One of the most lush areas on planet Earth. You wouldn't go there now. If you ever go to Libya or Algeria or Morocco, you don't. What? Really? Because <laughs> you don't see that. But at one time it was. And so to me, that means that the northern part of the continent of Africa will be blooming. It will be, it will be a harvest place. I don't know what a wheat, 
beans, corn, I don't know what will be growing there. But the productivity of the earth will be restored in every way. And so there'll be no more water problems. As a matter of fact, when you read in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about a river starting in Jerusalem flowing down to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will be a place where people fish, where people swim. That doesn't happen today. You can all go fishing the Dead Sea because you're not going to catch anything. There are no fish in the Dead Sea. But during the kingdom, it will be. And so it's just, it's unimaginable what's going to happen when the curse is lifted and the productivity of planet Earth is restored because Jesus is ruling. Sin problem has, for the most part, been taken care of. And that's what he's saying. Again, what's his point? A future promise of God should affect how we live today because this is your destiny. Creation is going to be restored to its productivity. And that's why in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, when he's talking about this, he says that the wolf will lie down with a lamb. It's incorrect to translate that lion. That's not what it said. But the wolf will. So everything in creation, where there's now a reign of terror, will be, everything will be at peace. Now, somebody, does that mean there will be no more carnivores in creation? You know, no more animals eating other animals? I can't comment on that. I don't know. Does that mean we'll all be vegetarians? I don't know. I can't comment on that. It's hard for me to imagine, and I will not be able to sit down and eat an Omaha steak. But maybe in the coming kingdom, I won't want to eat an Omaha steak. I can't imagine that, but we'll see. Anyway, I'm getting way beyond my competency to comment, so. <laughs> Going temporal. Yeah, right. <laughs> So look at, look, at, look at this next one. For we, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. We are groaning. Humanity is groaning. I mean, honestly, it, when, you, when you read it, you can oh, I understand what he's saying. Everything on planet Earth seems to be out of balance. seems to be chaotic. It's, it's a mess. Everything's groaning. There's got to be a better way to do this. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, verse 23, first fruits of the Spirit, that's, the word there is, it's really a pledge. Same thing that's said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. That the Spirit is a pledge. We groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption of Son. He brings that, that concept of adoption again, but what's he talking about here? The final, the final stage of being in the family of God. The final benefit of being in the family of God. What is it? Resurrected, glorified body. We groan for that. We can't wait for that. The redemption, notice it's appositional. Adoption of sons, and in my Bible, put a little equal sign, redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? Resurrected, glorified body. Yesterday, the lovely day, it was the last day I could do it. I had one more project I needed to do outside before, you know, I start my fall schedule next week, so I won't have that luxury day. So I worked almost all day outside. I had a major project I wanted Peggy wanted me to do in New York. I did that. But, you know, by the end of the day, my back I got a herniated disc. My back was pretty stiff. My right knee, which I don't have a ticket, but it was aching a little bit. My left foot. So 
I just, oh, when I, when I, after I showered, I collapsed in my chair. I thought, oh my goodness, I used to be able to work till six o'clock. Didn't bother me at all. But all these aches and pains, why? Because I'm getting old. <laughs> I can't do what I used to be able to do. And so you start to think, and this is, this is what keeps my wife going. When I get my new body, I won't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the heart condition she has. I won't have the autoimmune disease where I can only eat a very narrow amount of food. She is all she can't eat. Not in my new body. That's why she and Beth made this appointment to have tea every morning in the coming kingdom. This is, this is what Paul is saying. This stuff that you struggle with now will not be a part of the future. The redemption of your bodies. All of your suffering now is not to be compared with the glory of the coming kingdom in your resurrected, glorified body. Hence, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I don't hope for a cup of coffee. I got one right here that Fred graciously got for me. I don't hope for that. I already have it. I hope for a resurrected body where I won't have a herniated disc. I'm blind in my left eye from a childhood accident. I'll see with both eyes. All of those things as part of my hope. I know that's what's going to be the characteristic of my future body because the Bible's promised that. God's made that promise to me. So that should affect how. So I wait, and this is the hard word, with patience. So the Holy Spirit, not only is our helper, first part of chapter 8, he not only is the power which adopts us into God's family so that we can call God Abba, constantly corroborating that we are God's child. You're a member of the family. Remember that. Don't forget that. You belong to God. Don't forget that. But he also is the source of our hope. He's that energizing power. He's the pledge that God will keep his promises. And that's Ephesians 4, 13, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, how do you know God's going to keep his promises to you? He gave you the Holy Spirit. It's a pledge, down payment. He's going to keep all his promises to you. There is no What's that? Patience gives me problems. Yeah. The Holy Spirit. We all struggle with that patience. I'm sorry, Fred, go ahead. The Holy Spirit is an encourager to keep us going on. That's right. Even in the deepest, darkest times of our lives, He endorses. And He's calling us. Yes, uh, and the, actually the Greek word for comforter is parakletos, one who comes alongside and enriches, encourages, and builds you up. That's the Holy Spirit is in our lives. So. Yep. And again, remember verse 16. He's whispering in your ear, you are a child of God. You read scriptures, you pray, and as you are spiritually enriched, you keep, look, you belong to God. 
belong to him. You're his child. Don't forget that. Too many crickets ringing in your ear. And Jim, I think this is what gave a lot of Christians um, the will to persevere through all the mayhem that happened with COVID. Persevere uh, through it. Absolutely. Have hope. Be patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also is, and that's I think partially what you're alluding to, it also is why so many Christians in the 2,000 years of the history of the church have been willing martyrs for Christ, you know, willing to die for Christ. You know, a lot of it was due to political persecution or whatever, and whether you're in Rome or in communist China or Nazi Germany or whatever, that because the Holy Spirit has given you the assurance of who you are and what your destiny is through the written word of God that he keeps reminding you of this. He's your teacher. He's your guide. The work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so you're willing then, if that's the situation, to die for Christ. Renounce Jesus or I'll run you through. I'm not going to renounce Christ. All he's done for me, I'm not going to renounce him. My favorite, can I tell you this story? My favorite story of, of one of the great martyrs of the early church, a man named Polycarp, who was Bishop of Smyrna, um, modern day Smyrna in Turkey, but anyway, Bishop of Smyrna. And he, he was a disciple of John, John who wrote the fourth gospel, wrote Book of Revelation and all that. He discipled a number of individuals. Polycarp was one of them. This is the early 100s. And Polycarp was ordered by the Roman government to stop preaching Christ. He said, I'm not going to stop preaching Christ. If you don't stop preaching Christ, I'm going to run you through with my sword. I, I'm ready. And he says, okay, this, I'm not going to run you through. I'm going to burn you at the stake. And Polycarp looked him in the eyes. I am willing to be consumed by the fire if that's what God wants me to do. But I'm telling you, you will be consumed by fire if you don't put your faith in Christ. You imagine saying that to a Roman governor? He's talking about hell. That's where you're headed. So we have no idea how the impact that had, but that his, his congregation recorded that, and it's, you can read it, Google it, Polycarp's testimony. Google it today when you go home. You read it, it's incredible testimony. My point is that what you see here is you see this future promise, this cluster of promises we've been reading, gives us the courage, the courage to live for the Lord. And all that's the suffering and difficulties that we can experience the Lord, through the Spirit, who keeps encouraging all the things we've been studying. Yeah, I'm willing. Because of the glory that awaits me, because of the promise of Christ. I had the illusion that we might finish chapter 8, but that's not going to happen today. But that's all right. This is a rich chapter. Now, look, is, is everybody with me? Okay. Now, look at verse 26. I don't know if we'll get into this completely, but we'll get it started. Likewise, okay, that's a great way to translate that word, as the minister of the Spirit, which we just read about, the hope that he gives us, etc. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What a recognition. What a transparent, honest statement by Paul. There are times we're going to want to give up. There are times in our weakness we're going to throw it all to the wind. He explains in what way does the Spirit help us in our weakness. He explains it. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let's stop there for a minute. So the, the very first thing that the Spirit does is when we're weak, to the extent we cannot even verbalize a prayer. Have you ever been there? You don't have to answer that question. But if you, I have been. I know exactly part of what he's talking about. My wife really, as we've talked about this for quite a bit, knows exactly, you don't exa- you, you're hurting, you're weak, whatever the specific circumstances are, you cannot even articulate a prayer. What does he say? The Spirit intercedes for us. I'm going to read that again. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. I'm going to read that one more time. The Spirit intercedes for us. You know what the word intercede means, don't you? The Holy Spirit's praying for The Holy Spirit is going to the Heavenly Father and praying for you. You know what is really important? John 17, not only is the Holy Spirit praying for you, Jesus is praying for you. So you have two members of the Trinity praying for you to the Heavenly Father. I don't know about you, but I find that utterly profound. God is so interested in my spiritual life, in my spiritual condition. When I'm weak and I can't even articulate, I don't even know how to verbalize a prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes for me. Jesus intercedes for me. Is God interested in me personally? Yeah. With groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to the will of God. Now, that little phrase, he who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. He who searches the Heavenly Father, who searches hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit. And this is, this is the same language that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament on the work of the Holy Spirit in our minds and our hearts. Paul says, the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. And the Father, seeking, searching the hearts of his children, knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's prayers are always according to the will of God. Did you notice that? Always according to the will of God. When the Holy Holy Spirit intercedes, he's interceding for us according to God's will. And God's will always has eternal significance to it. In my church, where I'm on staff, a young sterling couple, he was a former student of mine. He's an executive in the same firm my son-in-law lives, uh, works in, senior vice president. Very good friend of my (coughs) son-in-law. And 2021 was diagnosed with colon cancer. He had a major part of his colon removed. He was on chemotherapy for quite a few months. January 5th, 2022 was his last day of chemo. When I saw Luke, I said, you're free. Oh, it's so good. And I saw him for a couple of months. The biggest thing he was doing was still fatigue. But cancer was in remission. He looked great. Three weeks ago, he felt a lump on his neck. 
And so he went in and they tested it. They did the biopsy and all that stuff. He has an aggressive form of cancer. <laughs> I think he's mid-30s, has two young children, beautiful wife. I mean, really a neat couple, really neat couple. That's devastating. Humanly speaking, much hope? Humanly speaking, Luke's probably going to die. Luke may not survive this year. We don't know that. There's so many unknowns yet. But just think of the devastating information that was when Luke and Heather heard the oncologist say, you've got stage four cancer. It's a different type of cancer, but it's much more aggressive. It's all over his body. I believe very strongly that the Holy Spirit was interceding for them according to the will of God. What's God's will for Luke? I don't know. Peggy and I, we had another friend that almost the same age, a couple, she died of cancer two years ago. Can you explain that? Can you give a satisfactory answer for that? We can't. We do not have a definitive answer. But as they have said, if you go on their, their, their website, they have one of those uh, care website things. We still believe God is good. We still believe God is sovereign. And God has a purpose for all this. And that doesn't come from a human vantage point. There is an example of confident trust that God knows what he's doing. I have no idea what's going to happen. But I believe very strongly that the Holy Spirit is interceding for them. Jesus is interceding for them. According to the will of God. So Paul can then boldly, it's almost audacious, really, declare in the next verse. Very famous verse. We know that for those who are, love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That is not a verse you want to quote at a hospital bed of someone dying for cancer. That, that's not a real good verse. It's true, but they don't necessarily need to hear that. Now, let's talk about that verse. When Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Not most things, but all things work together for good. Now, there are two... There are two terms here that I want to talk a bit about in this verse. Paul has just transitioned from the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. When we can't even verbalize a prayer, the Spirit prays for us. He's now transitioned to a major doctrine of our faith, the sovereignty of God. Verse 28 is about the sovereignty of God. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, did Luke's cancer sneak up on God's blind side, catch him off guard? I didn't know that was going to happen. <gasps> what are we going to do? That is a ludicrous statement to make. 
So we struggle with the right words. We really do. We struggle with the right words. So we say things which I think is correct. God permitted this. God allowed this. It would probably be inaccurate to say God caused this. God caused that to happen. Now, this is a fallen, broken world. Cancer is part of the brokenness of the human condition. There will be no cancer in heaven. There will be no heart conditions in heaven. It's a result of just the curse that's upon everything. So Paul is saying something that just permeates Scripture. A 100,000-foot view, let's pretend, that's God's view. A 100,000-foot view is, I am going to permit this, but I will bring good out of that. Greek word for good is agathos. I will bring good. But who determines the dimension of goodness? God does. And so you, you, we just have no idea how God, how does God bring good out of something like cancer or heart condition or, or an automobile accident or death in war or war itself? Do we have examples of it? Well, one of the most formidable testimonies is in Genesis 50, where Joseph and his brothers are mourning the death of their father. Jacob has died. And the boys say, Dad's dead. Now Joseph will get his vengeance. Remember what Joseph says to them? I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to take revenge. When you threw me into that pit and sold me to the Ishmaelites, you meant that for evil. But God meant it for good. And I want you to consider something. This doesn't help, but this is the 100,000 foot view of looking at things. If Paul says God's sovereignty all things work together for good. What's the most monstrous evil act ever in the history of the human race? The crucifixion of Jesus. Right? That was a monstrously evil act. He was innocent. He did he is he is not he's charged with something for which he did not guilty. He was he trumped up charges, six trials, all of them illegal. But did God bring good out of that dastardly act? He brought the redemption of the human race. It's possible for the human race now to enjoy fellowship with God for all eternity. The Bible calls that eternal life. So God, in his sovereignty, brings righteous good out of evil things. That's what Paul's saying. But you and I, this is really hard, you and I, have to trust the goodness and sovereignty of God. That's what Luke and Heather have written on their air page. We trust in God's goodness. We trust in his sovereignty. You can only say that if you have confident trust and faith in God. Oh my goodness, it's almost 10 of I've got to quit. Um, we're just starting on this. So next week I want to pick up again with verse 28 because I'm not done with that verse. But he, he, Paul, is transitioning from 
the importance of the Spirit's intercessory praying for us when we can't verbalize prayer to God's sovereignty. He's not done with that. And that's why next week, if you don't have it, get in your notes, page 18 in your notepad. Make sure you have a visual of that, you have a hard copy of that, because there's a chart there I want to spend some time on. All right, I'm going to pray. Father, we're at the end of a very, very important class. This material in Chapter 8, we are slowly working our way through this profoundly important chapter in the New Testament, the importance of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. And we've just worked through these marvelous verses of assurance. The Holy Spirit is just constantly whispering in our ears, you are a child of God. You belong to God. And he gives us that that energizing hope and enables us to persevere, to hang in there, to endure. Because all of creation groans for the return of Christ. All of creation groans for the removal of the curse. When everything is restored to its productivity and bounty, we long for that, Lord. But until then, we do experience suffering. We do experience difficulty. But we have this promise, too. And even in the midst of tremendous weakness, we can't articulate a prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Indeed, so does Jesus, as other parts of Scripture teach us. And so we can have the confident trust and faith that what we are going through now will pale in significance to the glory that will be ours in the coming kingdom. Those future promises keep us going today. Enable and empower each one of these men Continue to develop in them that strong, confident faith and trust in you. You are God who is good, a God who's sovereign, and you can bring good out of evil things that happen. We trust you with that. So I commit each one to you. Dismiss us now with your blessing. We pray in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.